Hello and welcome to Blades Pod. My name is Ben. It is Monday the 25th of March. I hope you're enjoying this international break as much as I am. Um, but to try and help us get through it, uh, I'm hoping this is the first of two podcasts this week actually. So today I'm joined by Kieran Maguire of priceoffootball.com. Kieran is a lecturer in football finance at the University of Liverpool. Uh, you may have seen some of his stuff on Twitter, you may have heard him on Radio Sheffield, various other things as well. Um, and yeah, Kieran very generously uh, has given up uh, about an hour of his time actually to talk about Sheffield United's financial state and the way we run our business, I suppose. So yeah, huge thanks to Kieran for uh, giving up his time for this one. Um, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot as well. I'm not a finance expert by any stretch of the imagination, so I got a lot out of this and uh, I very much hope that you will too. Um, and yeah, I mentioned just uh, earlier then hoping to do another podcast later this week as well. Uh, I asked for your questions on Twitter for myself and Blades Analytic. So yeah, we got an absolute ton of questions, uh, some absolutely fantastic ones. Uh, and yeah, hoping to kind of hit those on a podcast in a couple of days time. So yeah, hopefully this will help you get through the international break. Certainly, uh, certainly given me something to think about apart from, you know, work. So uh, yeah, here comes the podcast with Kieran Maguire. Please go and follow him on Twitter. It is at Kieran Maguire. I will be tweeting that one out as well. Uh, and check out priceoffootball.com. So yep, thanks very much for downloading and listening. And here we go. So I'm joined now by priceoffootball.com's Kieran Maguire, who is lecturer in football finance at the University of Liverpool, uh, an expert on all things financial in football, I suppose. Um, you may have heard him on Football Heaven last week on Radio Sheffield or on a podcast with Benjamin Bloom recently or on Not the Top 20 over the summer as well. And uh, yeah, I feel very privileged I feel very privileged that he's joining me on Bladespod to talk Sheffield United. Uh, Kieran, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ben. Looking forward to this. Should be fun. Yeah, definitely. So you obviously, um, you know, you're very deep into the world of uh, finance in football. And, uh, you know, you've written uh, a lot of articles on priceoffootball.com about various clubs' accounts as they come out. Uh, and yeah, you wrote an article about Sheffield United's 2017-2018 accounts, which you published a few months ago, I believe. Um, and it's very eye-opening. I mean, that was obviously our, our first season back in the Championship after... Uh, six years in League One, so you know a lot of kind of interesting things to pull out of that. I think United's sort of financial situation is, is I mean for me personally, it's quite interesting because you know you have this sort of boardroom situation that's going on. Obviously, we're potentially on the verge of jumping up two leagues in a couple of years as well. And uh, yeah, you you pull the load of stuff out of those accounts that uh, to to me a relative financial layman, I suppose, was was very enlightening. I thought. Um, I mean, I, I guess just to be clear, you, you know, you have no particular uh, dog in the race of the championship. You're a you're a Brighton fan, so I guess anything we're going to discuss here is is from a fairly neutral perspective. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I, I, tr- I try to be um, as objective as I can because I think you lose credibility if if you put the emotional bias into um, any form of writing or reporting. So. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got no axe to grind e- either way in terms of Sheffield. My, my only connections are I like Chris Wilder because he used to play for the Albion. Um, and I think in Oliver Norwood, you've got an absolutely fantastic signing. Uh, he, he he was superb for us a couple of seasons ago. He was great for Fulham last season and, and you've done done the right thing in signing him this year. Yeah, still not totally sure how we only paid uh, two million for him, to be honest, because he, he does seem absolutely brilliant. But um, yeah, I, I just want to get started with... Um... 
your sort of general feelings on how United are running their business is a very open question, I suppose, but particularly in comparison to other teams within the championship. I mean, uh, I've obviously listened to the podcast with Benjamin Bloom that I mentioned and on Football Heaven as well. And, you know, you very you very clearly lay out that the championship is an absolute mess, I guess, like an almost unsustainable maelstrom of uh, expenditure. Um, with teams, every team making a loss, I believe, and you know some of them extremely substantial, and this you know really skewed playing field of um, uh, parachute payments, and you know at the other end teams that are kind of uh, breaking the or pushing the boundaries of the uh, profit and sustainability rules. So yeah, I was, I was kind of just keen to get started on you know how you feel United are running their business in comparison to other teams within the league. I, th- I think uh, my assessment would be that last season they did pretty well, um, given that it was their first season back in the championship and they were climatizing to the, the, the struggles of being in that league. Um, to, to finish where they did was, was very creditable. Um, and what's happened this season has been nothing short of sensational. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a really tough division, you, which you can effectively split into three You've got the, the clubs who are in receipt of parachute payments um, and you know, we, we all know who they are and, and the advantage they have in terms of being able to pay the higher wages and, and to go out into the market if they so desire and, and they, can, they can blitz people. You've only got to look to see what happened when Newcastle and Villa came down a couple of seasons ago that they just spent money as if it was going out of fashion. Newcastle gambled on the right players and Villa gambled on the wrong players. And, and yeah, the hangover from that was that they were nearly liquidated. Mm. Uh, but Wednesday, sorry, sorry, Sheffield United appear to have spent money sensibly. Um, they've not uh, been over ambitious. Now, that could be coming from the boardroom. Um, but even so, they, uh, they do still rely on player sales to, to keep the losses to a reasonable level. Mm. Yeah, and I want to come on to that in uh, in a bit more detail. I mean, the the sort of um, I, I guess the thing is, yeah, nearly every club in the championship barely covers their wages in terms of income, right? So, uh, I think you, yeah, in in your article about our twenty seventeen eighteen accounts, you noted that we paid out ninety five pounds on wages for every a hundred pounds uh, that was coming in. So that's just wages. That's not covering you know, overheads or I guess uh, ground maintenance or anything like that. And yeah, my obviously we don't have the next set of accounts yet, um, but my guess is that we will be paying, uh, you know, a, a higher proportion of that now with new players coming in, with new contracts being given out to a lot of our key players as well. So I, I guess the thing is, if we're paying, let's say we are paying uh, more in wages than we're actually bringing in, how big of a problem is that? You know, United are making a loss is what that's saying. And I remember when you first published this article, a lot of people, it really rang alarm bells for some of our fans, you know, just to see that headline of how much we're losing every year. I think you said, is it 150,000 we're losing every think, week from trading? That, that's, yeah, I think it's over the last six or seven years, it's averaged 150,000. Um, there's there's two ways of, of addressing that particular issue. Um Method one is to rely on player sales, but but if you do that, of course, every time you you, you sell a star player, he a he has to be redu- he has to be replaced. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you, you you're going to have to go and pay somebody decent wages to replace him, and that might cost you a transfer fee, and, and you might be reducing the the quality of the squad. Um, but it's 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 the nature of the beast in the championship. Um, the, the second 
the second method, and this is something which happens for the vast majority of clubs in the championship, is you just rely on the owners putting money into the club, either through lending it money or alternatively the club issues fresh shares to the to the owners and, and uh, that, that's used to pay the bills. Um, you, you wouldn't run any other business in such a way. Um, the big issue with being in the championship is because you are so close to being in the Premier League and the, the riches of, that that brings that, that many owners are prepared to take that gamble and to effectively subsidise the right that's paying for the overheads of the club in, in the hope that they'll, they'll get a lucky break one year or they'll put together a really tight squad, as, as I would see is my perception of the case with Sheffield United, mm. um, and use that as a vehicle to get promoted and, and then hopefully to, to get some of the those losses reversed. Mm. Do you, from, from our accounts, is that your impression that it's, uh, that United are currently funded by player sales or that it is the owners putting their hands in their pocket to just keep the club running? I mean, you you mentioned, I think it was on the Ben Bloom podcast, you know, you were talking about, uh, I think it was Marcus Evans, the Ipswich chairman, you know, that he, he was basically writing a cheque every week just to keep the club going. Do you, do you think that's the kind of thing that's happening with United or is it a bit more of a balanced approach from what you can tell? Well, they, they have been fortunate in, in 2017. Um, I think it was the sale of Kyle Walker and Harry Maguire mm. and the, the sell-on fees, which came from their subsequent transactions, which helped to reduce those losses of £10 million to something which was more bearable. Um, and the same will happen this year because of the sale of David Brooks. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, United have been successful in, in terms of their player trading. I, I think they, they must have had a, a very fortunate windfall in, in respect to both Walker and Maguire. Um, I think nobody would have expected them to have moved on at such high prices, but mm. but fair play to them for putting those clauses into the contracts in the first place. And, and that's fairly standard these days when 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 uh, you are a selling club and and you're you're putting on a, a relatively young prospect into a, a into a bigger club. You say, well, if, if he then goes on to to become a star and becomes attractive to one of the big six, then somebody's going to uh, have to pay a, a slice of that back to to the likes of United. So, so they, they've been successful, um, but I still suspect when when the accounts do come out that uh, the owners will, despite their differences between themselves, will will still have been subsidising the club to a degree. Mm. How? <laughs> I guess this is the big question. How is how is this sustainable for United? What happens if the, if the owners or one of the owners suddenly decide, no, nah, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not uh, I'm not going to keep you know subsidising this, putting my just chucking my money in for the you know the gamble of trying to get in the Premier League. What what would actually happen in that situation? I apologise if that's a really sort of boneheaded, obvious question, but yeah, it's one that's kind of on my mind. I'm not really sure which way it goes. Well, there's there's one of two things that could happen. The, the other owner could lend f- further sums to the club and that would have to be agreed between both parties. Um, and, and then if, if they do that, if, you know, they could invest in either buying more shares or lending uh, further money. Um, and, and that would have to come to an agreement at board level or you'd effectively have to have some form of fire sale um, arrangement in the summer to to be able to fund the, the the costs of running the club over a summer which is normally it's its worst period of the year because you, you've not got match day income coming in and um, sky's first next installment will be awaiting for a few months so so the the, the summer period is is quite a tricky one for clubs hmm. from um 
from from Blades fans' perspective, you're all hoping that the club will be promoted to the Premier League. And, and to be fair to both Sky and BT, the first payment from them comes in quite early in the season, um, so because both because the broadcasters are very keen to fund the transfer market because it, it keeps them uh, it keeps them in a job because it gives them something extra to report mm. but also it improves the competitiveness of life in the Premier League itself of course yeah um just a, on a sort of more general note in the championship i mean you know we've talked a little bit there about how you know every club is making these losses in some cases huge losses you know we've seen the situation with birmingham this week there's a you know a real mess going on at bolton as well how how is this sustainable for the championship as a whole? And indeed, will it be sustainable? Do, do you kind of foresee major um, a major shake-up to what's happening in the championship in terms of the amount that teams are sinking into wages and, you know, the losses they're making? Because, I mean, obviously you mentioned, you know, football's not like other businesses and, you know, businesses simply wouldn't be able to run this way. But when all 24 teams in the championship are making huge losses and only three of them are going up every year, is that sustainable like in perpetuity or you know do you foresee a real tipping point where teams will have to change something well i think we have seen a number of of challenges this year you've only got to look at what's been happening at uh, at swansea where mm. they've had a new chief executive who's come in and said anybody who's not in the playing squad of effectively your job is on the line um so so that's an example of where things have gone too far bolton wanderers is robbing Peter to pay Paul in terms of the way that it deals with its suppliers and creditors. Mm. That's in that's in crisis. Um, Aston Villa were, is my understanding, they were within two hours of being liquidated last summer um, under the reign of Dr. Tony. So uh, there, there's lots of red flags in that division. There's, there's various ways that can be dealt with. There does appear to be a conveyor belt to a certain extent of extremely rich people, you know, people who have money beyond our contemplation, mm. who are willing to take a punt on buying a club in the championship. And, and the reason for that is, A, you can buy a, a club for relatively cheaply. So um, you've got the likes of you know, Wigan and Barnsley, who's, who tend to be sort of yo-yo clubs between the championship and League One. Yeah, those, those have been sold for between 20 to 30 million pounds. Now, that's a lot cheaper than going into the Premier League, mm. where it's going to cost you a minimum of 150, realistically closer to, to 200 to 250 million. So whilst there's there's a market for buying and selling clubs, and, th- and that appears to be the case um, amongst the, the, the elite rich, then it is sustainable, but only if these individuals continue to, to subsidise the clubs and, and the, the average loss um, from the figures that we've seen so far for 2017-18, is that, is that clubs are, are losing an average of £400,000 a week. Um, eventually, these people will get bored, but I, I still think we're um, a long way from that because if you take a look at what happened with Villa, um, Ellis Ellis Short, oh, sorry, uh, Randy Lerner became bored at Villa yes. with, with the, the extent of the losses there. He passed it on to Dr Tony. Dr Tony had a couple of years of... of complete lunacy from a financial perspective <laughs> and he's passed it on to somebody else Sunderland where we did a very short he's 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 just walked away um and, and he's passed on the running the club to, to another individual um, and what we've seen w- with many of these transactions is that the previous owners have also just said don't bother repaying me I just want 
rid of having to write out these ridiculous checks on a weekly basis. Wow. I mean, it is almost like, why would anyone get into that? But I guess uh, from an ownership point of view, but is is it simply the case that the prize of getting in the Premier League is so enormous that that, that is that is what they're willing to take the gamble on? That's why they're willing to to write these checks for uh, a long period of time because if you get promoted, you might actually turn a profit. Is that is that a fair summary? Um, I, I think making a profit is is secondary to many of them because okay. of, of twelve Premier League clubs who have reported uh, their figures to date. Only three out of the twelve made a profit last season. Mm. So whilst there's a lot more money in the in the Premier League, I, I think that the the reason and the motives behind the purchases of these clubs is, is one of either vanity or insanity. <laughs> uh, if, if you are a high net worth individual. What else can you spend your money on? You could you could you could buy fine art. You can you can take over some other companies. You can have an enormous yacht and, and a helicopter and all and all, all the trimmings of wealth. But that doesn't really give you the satisfaction that owning a football club does, because there's that incredible um, sense of achievement and success. And it is a it is a business where. There, there's a very few assets that can be bought. You know, there are only 20 clubs in the Premier League. There's only 24 in the Championship. So to be a, an individual who is known um, for their ownership of something which is being discussed in the media every day of of the week. I mean, if I was in, if I was on Pointless, for example, and and the the, the discussion point was name a Russian oligarch. Mm. Well, there's only one person that people are going to come up with, yeah, and, and that's purely because of, of Abramovich's um, investment in Chelsea, which, which has cost him a lot of money. But it's also meant that he's not been poisoned. Um, so, <laughs> you know, from, from his point of view, it's it's money, perhaps money well spent. It, yes, yeah. it's, it's so high profile that it, it does give him a sort of a, a cloak of invisibility in in terms of falling out with the Kremlin <laughs> and sort of the the politics of foreign ownership where we are seeing um, Asian owners coming in because they know that if they own a an English football club, that might actually be used to leverage um, obtaining contracts back in their home country. So there's an awful lot going on behind the scenes, which I think we as fans don't necessarily um, put two and two together because you know, it, it's done behind closed doors and, it, and it's done at a level of uh, geopolitics that, that isn't something that particularly we're interested in. Mm. Is, that a, is it a relatively new influx of, uh, I guess, foreign ownership in the championship? Because it, it sort of feels like it, but then I, I realised that I just wasn't really clued into who was owning all these clubs, I don't know, say as recently as five or six years ago. Is, is it relatively new this, or has it always been this way, would you say? No, it, it it has been growing. You've only got to look to see what's uh, you know, happened at Forest and QPR mm-hmm. and Reading and Birmingham and Cardiff. Well, Cardiff are now being promoted, of course, and we've got Villa, Wolves. You know, you you you, you actually start to list those clubs, and and you realise that the the proportion of, of owners who come from overseas, and and that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's it's good that we are, do have a product which is attractive to. Uh, investors on a global scale and it, i think it's testament to just how brilliant the championship is as, as a division that uh, that people are willing to look beyond just the premier league um so it, it certainly is is uh, it is one reason to invest in clubs in in the championship and the other main investing groups tend to be um wealthy fans 
who just love their club. So if you look to see, you know, Bristol City and uh, and Middlesbrough and and even Marcus Evans at Ipswich, for all the stick that he takes, he is he is a lifelong fan. You've mm. got Mel Morris at Derby County as well. So th- there is there is that sort of local relationship as as well as having the the, the global investment which is coming from. Um, Asia from from the US and, and from from the far and from uh, what what we used to be sort of the Russian um, oligarch area as well. Mm, indeed, I suppose Kevin McKay probably falls into that. Uh, yeah, lo- local businessman and fan trying to trying to keep things going. I suppose. Um, so j- just to sort of return to uh, United specifically, then, you know, what do you kind of see as our sort of strengths and weaknesses in terms of our kind of current incomings and outgoings, as, as you sort of understand it from our accounts? Well, I, I think the strength is is you're getting maximum bang per buck um, in terms of performance per pounds worth of wage paid into the club Mm. Um, and I think you've probably to a certain extent had the benefit of being in the in the championship for sufficient years for all of the the high earners that used to be at the club effectively to have their contracts will have been passed through uh, and therefore you, you you were promoted with players who were on good money by league one standards um, which meant that you were competitive from a, from the perspective of being able to put in a promotion challenge, and and to a certain extent that's carried over into the uh, into the championship in your first year. I mean, based on my calculations, which are pretty rough and ready, I, I estimate that Sheffield United last season were paying an average of nine thousand pounds a week per player in the championship, where where the overall average is around about fourteen to fifteen. Now, the problem that you're going to have this season, which is your second season in, in the championship, is that the, the players who performed well for the club last season will have been knocking on the, the on Chris Wilder's door saying, you know, I, I, I think I deserve a pay rise. But also now that you are recruiting other players, either from from the Premier League, where where perhaps they, they, they hadn't made the, the progress they'd look forward to, or from other championship clubs, you know, their benchmark is is going to be well. You know, if the average in this division is fourteen, fifteen grand a week, then you know, I I feel that uh, that I or, or if you're if you're using an agent, you know, my client um, deserves that because Sheffield United, you know, they were mid table last season. They did well. Um, if you want to take them a step further, then you've got to pay accordingly. So I, I think that this season will be tough if the club doesn't go up i think the losses the trading losses could easily match or or exceed those of last season um despite the fact that the crowd's gone up a wee bit and and you're on tv more often than last season Mm. but uh you know that uh as as the income goes up a wee bit i I think that the the major running cost in the form of wages will will have gone up significantly yeah i can imagine people will have heard that and suddenly uh <laughs> had some alarm bells ringing themselves i mean is it how how big a disaster would it be financially if we didn't get promoted presumably not actually a disaster it just wouldn't be good for us but relative to the competition it would be what really bad or not such a big deal um it it really depends what you're trying to benchmark yourself against but because right. we do have these these three divisions within within the championship you've got the the ex premier league clubs who are still living off the you know the, the fat um in the form of parachute payments then you've got what i would call the the, the championship 
perennials, you know, the clubs that have been there for quite a few seasons. So we're talking about the likes of Forest and Leeds and QPR and and Ipswich and so on. They are they are used to paying out the average level of wages or perhaps slightly below um, and just accepting they're going to make losses every year. And I think, you know, from from an outsider's point of view, that's where I would see Sheffield United if you don't go up. Then you've got the what I referred to earlier, which is perhaps a bit harsh on these clubs, but sort of the yo-yo clubs, the likes of Millwall and Barnsley and Wigan, who have sort of occupied places in the uh, in the Championship and League One and sort of bounced up and down. They tend to pay wages at the lower end of that particular uh, the lower end of the table. So. If, if you want to be in that mid-tier, which which is my assessment of Sheffield United mm-hmm. um, for you know the forthcoming future, you know, ideally um, you'll get promoted this season. And, and I think you know as a as a fan of another club who's presently in the Premier League, I think everybody would think it's great to have a um, a side from Yorkshire in the Premier League that that nobody hates. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know you, you'll be you'll be more than welcome in the division. Um, and, and then there, there says, you know, there's a fresh, there's a set of what you might refer to as nice problems. You know, what are we going to do spending this, spending seventy million pounds on transfers this season, mm. um, and things of that nature. Um, so going up, not going up is is it's it, it's not great because it means you are you will have incurred significant losses this season. Then it comes down to the two parties um, in terms of the ownership. And I must confess, you know, I, I I don't know enough about the intricacies of the the disputes between the the, the two sides. I don't think any of us do. Guidance there. Um, it, it's up to them to act like adults and say, well, look, we we came pretty close. Um, in 2019, you know, let's let's not let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to budgeting for the following season. Mm. I mean, you know, even with that sort of caveat uh, put in there, do, do you do you think as a as an outsider that part of that impasse at boardroom level is is probably because of uh, you know both owners kind of see the massive prize that's available in terms of value of the club if we get promoted, and that's kind of causing this. I guess disagreement over you know how much how much the club is actually worth at the moment. Do, do you think that is almost a complicating factor? The fact that we are so close to essentially I don't know quadrupling the value of the club. Very much so. Um, if, if somebody was to buy a club today with with eight matches left of the season, then you you would put to, you, you do a series of valuations and. You know, one it's a bit like the budget for next season. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure that the, the 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 people at the board at board level would have already done this with Chris Wilder to say, well, look, Chris, if we go up, this is what you've got to spend, and if we don't go up, it's it's effectively the same as this year, and it's the same in in terms of the value. So, if I was buying the club today with a you know, realistically a 45 percent chance of promotion um, with eight matches to go, yeah, it is two from three. Mm-hmm. Um, then, um, you know, I, I would put that into into a price as as a. But if you if you hold on for for six weeks, and let's face it, both Kevin McCabe and and the other owner is 
independently wealthy enough to not need a sale within the next six to eight weeks, then they, they, they could you know, treble their money by, have, by being able to sell the club to any party. And that could either be sorting it out amongst themselves or perhaps completely fresh owners coming in and saying that we've always wanted to buy own a, own a Premier League football club. Um, one way for both parties to walk out of this with their heads held high is to both receive a, a big cheque um, and then they can say, well, we're the people that are responsible for taking Sheffield United to the Premier League. Mm. Now we'll hand it over to a vanity or insanity owner and uh, hope for the best. <laughs> that's doesn't, right. doesn't sound like a great criteria to have somebody running your business, really, does it? But that's football, I suppose. Um, I mean, just, just quickly, you mentioned it there, but uh, you know, you, you noted in your, your report on our accounts that United's value would jump to 150 million or so if we got promoted. Could I just ask quickly how you how you arrive at that number and uh, and I guess how it compares with what you'd expect the club's value to be right now? Um, there, there, there's a variety of ways. One, one, you can compare it to other deals. If we look at the sale of West Brom, which I'd say is you know, broadly a club sort of, of of the same size and 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 appeal. Um, to Sheffield United, that that was sold for 150 million. Everton was sold for 175. Um, Leicester was sold. So sorry, Southampton was sold for for 220. So you, you look at those prices and you say, well, let, let's benchmark against those. So it's a bit like here, how would you value uh, a house in a road? You'd look at the what other houses in in that street had gone for and say, well, this one's got a bigger garden, that one's got a conservatory, that one's just one repainted, um, and things of that nature. Um, and also, you know, I have to be perfectly blunt in, in terms of how close is it to London? Yeah, because what we are seeing is that when it comes to the the overseas owners, um, they are very keen to to have the benefits of of a London location because it, it, London is is a is a country within a country mm. in terms of property valuations and things of that nature. Um, you know, I'm. I know that, uh, for example, Crawley Town is being hawked around at present by its owners, and and he's uh, he, he he's selling it as a London football club, mainly because it's five miles from Gatwick Airport. But Crawley's not in you know, is is a fair distance from London. So so there's there's that's one way of valuing it. The other way is to look at the the cash that you'd expect the club to generate over the course of the next four to five years. Mm-hmm. So if you are in the Premier League, then you've got a minimum of £100 million coming in in terms of TV money in that season. And if the worst happens and the club's relegated, you've still got £80 million of parachute payments coming in in the following two seasons. If you survive a season in the Premier League, then then your number of parachute payments goes up from two to three. So, so you would build that in and say, well, this is the cash the club is going to generate. You'd compare that to the cash a club in the championship generates. Then you do a bit of, you know, without getting too nerdy on this, you do a little bit of financial maths and, and come up with a, with a value. Um, and so that's, that's effectively, yeah, that's the type of nonsense that I teach at, uh, at uh, undergraduate level for, for students and uh, you know, trying to justify some of the prices that are being paid for clubs. Mm. So basically, Sheffield City Council needs to do a better job of marketing the city from a, a tourism and a business perspective, and uh, that will have a huge knock-on effect on the value of Sheffield United. We just need to we need to blow our trumpet a bit more and, and show that we're actually better than London and more more attractive place to own a business. It's well, it's, it's, it, it is a great city. You know, as 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 a, as a fan of another club, we, we always look forward to a, a day out in Sheffield. You know, the, the, the pubs are great. 
the the atmosphere at the grounds is is you know is, is normally superb as well um and it's one of those places where you don't feel threatened you know the people are, are friendly and fair um you know i've always found so there's lots of positives but from a cold hearted businessman's point of view that doesn't necessarily count for a lot no. um you know they 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 will be looking for a return and and they do like the bright lights of london sadly yeah who doesn't? Um, all right, so uh, yeah, I just want to return to this one. So United obviously sold David Brooks to Bournemouth uh, in the summer last year, which which obviously falls outside of the accounts that you have access to. Uh, that was for a reported twelve million. Uh, as as an outsider, then do you do you see that as the club kind of needing to make a sale in order to finance the season, or do you think it was more like a confluence of other factors? So you know, the player wanted a move, the money was deemed acceptable to the club, and the manager thought it would help to finance new players, like. As much as you kind of uh, have, I guess, evidence or information on this, yeah, do you think it's it was a case of the club needed to make that sale to keep us running, essentially, or was it, you know, a, a combination of other things? I, I, I think it was a, a good deal for all parties. Mm. Um, David Brooks, and I like him because he's in my fantasy football team, <laughs> um, has proven himself to be a player who is capable of not only... Um, surviving, but also thriving in the Premier League. Um, I think he felt that he he could compete there, um, and in, and in terms of his value, that will have significantly increased. Yeah, he's he's certainly one of the people that that he's spoken about. So, you know, Bournemouth could easily sell him this summer for for thirty to thirty five million, mm. um, compared to the eleven to twelve million that that they they bought him for. So, yeah, that that's the nature of of the market in the Premier League. Um, did they need to sell him? I, I think. Not um, again. I would point out that you know, the, the owners, whilst they appear to be in some form of conflict with each other, um, they're, they're not going. They're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and and refuse to 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 fund the club whilst it's in the championship um, and whilst it's potentially able to um, get a, get get the golden ticket for the Premier League itself. So I think they would. What the the benefit of selling David Brooks to them was that it simply reduces the the amount of money that they have to subsidise the club for this season. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I've got no real like feelings either way towards our our owners, so I'm not a uh, you know uh, I'm not pushing out the propaganda on their behalf or anything like that. But it, it it does feel to me as a fan that we've been able to more or less carry on as business as usual despite this conflict uh, conflict sorry I mean you know we broke our transfer record for John Egan this summer we brought in key players like Norwood and McGoldrick given contracts to our other star players which is a, a really big deal I think in kind of you know securing them as much as you can in football or, or at the very least in, increasing their value so yeah I'm glad you kind of called that out really because it, it sort of feels like even with this black cloud on the horizon we've, we've been okay and you know it, basically being able to carry on business as usual and yeah hopefully it won't mean that we need to uh sell another sort of key asset in the summer i suppose but yeah um i just wanted to also ask like generally about transfers and how they're how they're kind of spread out so you know i mentioned john egan there you know we reportedly paid four million for him in the summer and you know obviously we don't have the details of that in accounts yet but is it kind of typical that that will be spread out over several years or is it sometimes the case that a club will immediately go like there's four million for the player instantly bank transfer into your account on Monday morning that kind of thing? How, how does how does it typically work with the sort of financing of transfers? Right, there's there's two elements. There's the there's the funding of the transfer, and then there's how it's going to be dealt with in the accounts. 
Now, as far as funding is concerned, um, the majority of the time these days, given that we are dealing with, if you if you are dealing with a multi-million pound deal, then it will be stretched out over a series of annual instalments. Sometimes you, you might agree to to pay all of the amount up front, um, and you'll get a slight discount for that. It's, it's the same if you, you you go you go to a shop and you offer to pay something in, in cash as opposed to using a debit card or you know or, or on a credit scheme. So um, the fund the funding for a, a four million pound transfer could be spread over two or three years to to uh, improve the cash flow or. It, what they might have said was, well, we've just received all of the money from the sale of David Brooks up front, and we're going to invest that straight away. And we, and therefore, in, in terms of Egan, we've got a slightly better deal. Um, so, so that's that's the funding. It really does depend. But what we are seeing, especially at Premier League level, is is the use of buying players on credit. I think Manchester United um, last June they they owed other clubs two hundred and sixty million pounds for outstanding instalments on transfer fees. So yeah. at the elite level, we have, the numbers are completely crazy. Um, it's it, it's less of an issue, I would say, in the Championship, and, and then in League One, you know, half the clubs don't pay money for transfers anyway. Mm. So yeah. that's the that's the funding issue. Um, in terms of how he's going to appear in the accounts, um, if if you if you look at the accounts in detail, you, you will see something called player amortization, mm -hmm. which is, again, sort of a nerdy accounting term. But the simple way to put it is that um, if, if, you, if you've signed him for £4 million on a four-year contract, then what happens is that the, the total cost is spread over the total life of the contract. So you're committed to, a, to a, a, an accounting cost. That's nothing to do with how he's being paid for. There's an accounting cost of one million a season. You take the four million, you spread it over the five year, over the four years, and th th that gives you a figure. So when you when you see this amortisation figure in the accounts um, and in respect of Sheffield United, uh, I'm just looking at my table here. That was around about two million pounds last season. That's in respect of the, the total amounts paid in, for players spread over the remaining life of their contracts, and and that figure is is very low by by championship standards you've you've got clubs spending you know 20 you know villa and uh, middlesbrough have got spending 10 times that amount and mm. um, in terms of, of transfer fee costs being spread over a period of time so i guess it's not going to be atypical that uh, clubs are going to be spending uh, continually continue to spend transfer fees on players that no longer play for them then is that fair so if we sold john egan in the summer and say we still owed uh, brentford an amount of money would still be paying that would still be appearing in our accounts as like this is more transfer fee for someone who no longer plays for us is that is that a typical situation well when when the player is sold um then you you would record a profit or loss on his sale so mm -hmm. it, it does sort of um it, it does sort of enter the dark arts uh world of accounting, accounting. <laughs> um so you if, if you take a look at uh Sheffield United's accounts for last season, you'll see in the profit and loss account a, a big figure for for profits on player sales. Um, so, so when when the player is sold, that disappears. Um, or the amortisation disappears with the player. So last year, you, you had profits on player sales of eight million. Hmm. What um, presumably, like let's take the Brook sale as an example. You know, say that was coming in instalments. Presumably, it's not the case that clubs will be like, "Oh, we haven't 
we haven't received the second half of the David Brooks money yet, so we we need to wait for that to enter our bank account before we can go and sign a new player. Presumably, that's not how this business actually operates. The, the fact that that money is owed won't hold clubs up from you know spending it. Essentially, is that is that fair? Yeah, that 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 that's fair. I, I think uh, you know the, the world of football does work on credit these days. Mm. So. Um, What's going to happen if, if Bournemouth are playing installments for, for David Brooks, then then you can sign a replacement player on, on credit terms from another club. Mm. Um, and I think you know, if, if you are dealing with a multi-million pound deal, that is sort of the accepted way of doing business. So, so nobody, nobody bats an eye anymore. It is a relatively new feature um, of football, um, but it, it's becoming increasingly common simply because even the mega wealthy can't necessarily write out a check for x million pounds um mm. at, at 2 minutes notice so there's not you normally pay a deposit and then the remainder will be paid over the over the agreed terms of the contract interesting um one other thing that i pulled out of your uh, accounts write up was that you know that um united have comparatively poor commercial activity uh, and it was a very small rise in our first season back in the championship. I think it was a 7% increase. Um, United are also in the, um, I think, the bottom sector for other income in the championship. So basically, yeah, they're not making much money from commercial activity, essentially. what? Why do you think that is? And, and what could or should the club be doing to improve it? I think the main reason for that, it, it's a legacy issue in terms of being in League One for a few years so therefore, when you were promoted, um, there might have been step ups in terms of some of the deals that the club had signed with commercial sponsors, but they wouldn't have necessarily been particularly significant. Hmm. Um, so to a certain extent, it's, it's waiting for those deals because m- most most times if you have a sponsorship arrangement that will be signed for, for X years, it's a case of waiting for that deal to to expire or given that United are on the on the threshold of being promoted to the Premier League, is going back to those sponsors and saying to them, "Look, yeah, we've done really well this season. Um, you know, if, if you sign up now, um, you know, we can offer you a slight discount on the price we'd normally charge for a club in the Premier League." So it's it, it's a case of hustling and selling and you know, doing the things that we, we don't really want to associate with our football club, but <laughs> being sort of being smart in business. Um, mm. So. Although they are at the bottom end of the commercial stroke other income table, and um, that really is a function of not being in the championship um, for, for a few years because what sponsors are looking for is exposure. They're looking for eyeballs. Sure. Now, if, if you've got 20,000 people turning up um, every couple of weeks at, at Bramall Lane, that, that's one thing. Um, but in League One, how many TV, sorry, how many matches are chosen for broadcast by TV? It's mm. relatively few. Whereas if you contrast that with the championship, um, you know, there's, there's matches on every single week from the championship. Um, and they, they attract, you know, on average, 250 to 450,000 people will be watching those on Sky. Those, those are extra eyeballs. And that's what um, sponsors and advertisers um, are, are willing to pay for. Yeah. Uh, so st- stay in the championship and those figures will rise get promoted to the Premier League and the fact that, and again, it, it, it sounds harsh, but it's not meant to be, is the fact that you are hosting matches against Manchester United and Liverpool and mm. Chelsea and Arsenal and their fans, which are global, will turn up in their millions to to, to watch. So therefore, from, from Sheffield United's point of view, 
Um, it's a case of they will benefit from being the other side in those particular matches. Mm, absolutely. Um, you, you touched on it there, and it's, it's something I kind of always wondered, or particularly wondered in the last uh, five or six years, I suppose, and that is how important are crowds to a team's ability to compete financially? So I'm talking, I, I do mean crowds here, not, not a global fan base, but the amount of people who actually get into the stadium for home games. Does it actually make a big difference for United specifically if we have 30,000 fans every week compared to, say, 10,000 fans? Um, it makes a difference. And as far as United are concerned, um, they had a higher proportion of money coming from match day than, than any other club in the championship from, from, the, from, the, from the analysis that I've done to date uh, for last season. Hmm. So certainly it, it does matter because you know, it was nearly £9 million and that covers half of your wages. Right. Um, compared to what you can expect to see in, in the Premier League, if you've got £9 million coming in in the championship, you, know, you, you have big, slightly bigger crowds in, in, the, in the Premier League. So that nine might go up to 12 but given that the TV money will go up from seven to a hundred, it doesn't make a, that much difference in the Premier League. That's mm. why you've got Bournemouth with a capacity of eleven thousand. You've got Burnley with a capacity of twenty thousand. Um, yeah, West Brom's capacity wasn't particularly good, but those clubs have all thrived in in the Premier League through budgeting sensibly, um, through through not having a necessarily a, a, a sort of a, a Galactico approach to their signings. <laughs> Um, and just acting as you know, acting to try to live within their means as much as they could. Mm. Uh, so it does have an impact in the championship if you are non-parachute payments, because if you, if you weren't receiving, if you were on ten thousand a week um, in terms of crowds, then then you'd be like Millwall and Burton Albion and clubs of that nature. And I think you would be a yo-yo club by getting twenty-five to thirty thousand coming in. It puts you into that middle tier that I was discussing earlier mm. you know you are seen as being quite an attractive from from a sponsor's point of view um and you should have reasonable resources to to invest in players so that therefore you are with the likes of Forest and say Bristol City um and you know other clubs like of that nature um who who will then become stalwarts of the division mm. and, really- and therefore if you're in that position then you're Hopefully, your, your your day minimus at the start of every season is top half with an idea to pushing into the playoffs or automatic, as that as has happened this season. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought of it that way. I always, I always kind of thought crowds, like, you know, you just do 25,000 times £25 a ticket or something like that. But yeah, that, that knock-on effect of being more attractive from a sponsorship point of view, which presumably drives up value as well. I never really considered that. So, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting to hear. Um, I think... We've got most of my United-related topics ticked off there. So I, I quickly just wanted to get your thoughts on the Birmingham points deduction. So Birmingham obviously deducted uh, nine points last week. Um, and yeah, I, I'm just going to give you the floor here, actually, rather than uh, colour it with my own opinion. But um, yeah, what, what was your thoughts on the, I guess, the severity and timing of this punishment? Um, I thought the timing was very interesting because the deadline for which clubs can be given a points penalty is this Thursday. So there are other clubs in in that division who are having a very nervous week 
Um, yeah, so, so, so never, never mind, never mind the weekly breakfast. So it's a Brexit uh, you know, carnage that's taking place. <laughs> I think there will be some chairman that will be waiting for the phone to not ring from the <laughs> EFL. Um, so that uh, what what was revealing, I think, in in terms of Birmingham, was that if as I've read the the uh, the decision in depth, it's been it's been a full full report coming up from the reporters. Um, that there were there were three components of that nine points deduction. Hmm. Um, there was there was seven points in terms of the extent of the losses. So I think you, you start off with um, the, the twelve point, which is supposed to be the maximum, is if you exceed the allowed losses by fifteen million pounds. Birmingham's was just under ten million, so therefore they were given um, a, a reduction for that. So they were they were fined seven points for um, overspending. Then there's what we refer to as aggravating and mitigating factors. Mm. Um, they were given a further three-point penalty for doing what they did deliberately um, and not really worrying about the consequences. Uh, now, that seems to me to be completely arbitrary as to where mm. you get three points from. So how are you going to decide um, you know, whether at board level people have just said, oh, we don't really give a hoot? Um, and then they were given one point off for good behaviour. Yeah, that, that one really struck me as weird, but go, go ahead. Well, that, that does seem bizarre, given that the club effectively said, well, we don't really care about financial fair play. We're going to go for it. Yeah, we think that uh, uh, Harry and Gianfranco Zola are, are, the, are the answer to our prayers um, and, and just spend money as it's going out of fashion. Given that uh, they've got a previous owner who is currently incarcerated for money laundering mm. and, and given that um, it's not just a case of having one of their fans being a complete idiot by running on the pitch and hitting an opposing player is the fact that when he was escorted back to the terraces, he was given a, you know, a cheer, cheer to the rafters by his fellow fans. So if, if that's qualifies for good behavior, I, I hate to think what they consider bad behavior to be. So it was, it was admitting a breach, admitting the breach was what the point was off. Is that, that, that's right. But it, it's, yeah. it's a bit like, you know, walking out of Tesco's with, you know, with, with a, with a six pack, uh, which you've not paid for. And then, and then being caught by, caught by security and say yeah I nicked yeah it. i did that yeah. Yeah. while you're midway through the third can yeah so it, <laughs> and then you finish that, it that did seem bizarre and the cynic in me and i don't want to sound cynical is that if you take a look at what has happened is that there's there's no further um there's no further uh restrictions in terms of fines or embargoes in terms of players yeah, Birmingham were were thirteenth before this ruling, and they just lost four matches. And yeah. and if you if you look at what you look at the Birmingham Mail, you look to see what Birmingham fans are saying is, well, we're, we're just quite happy that it was only nine points because they've given up chances of getting into the playoffs. If Birmingham had won the last four matches and they were in the playoffs and they'd just been deducted nine points, I think their reaction would have been completely different. I think it would have been far more up in arms. Well, this is what bothers me. It's like, you know, the timing and the severity seem very suspicious to me because, as you say, essentially allows Birmingham to just wash their hands. They had a very, very low chance of making the playoffs. And now they have a very, very low chance of getting relegated. The season was essentially over. And yeah, the punishment is, to me anyway, it seems like essentially nothing, to be honest. But I guess the thing is, does this set a precedent? Is this precedent setting for other clubs in their state? Or is there sort of enough wriggle room for the EFL to kind of 
keep tailoring their punishments based on individual circumstances at each clubs. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is next next club that is found to break the kind of FFP boundaries, are they going to get deducted nine points as well? Or is it going to be this custom tailor-made punishment for them? No, it's, it's definitely going to be tailor-made. We, we now effectively have a tariff for the extent to which you've exceeded the allowable FFP losses. Right. So for the first time, that, that now seems to be in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we can... We can start to crunch some numbers. You know, if, if you're a if you are a complete loser like myself who does nothing but this for a living, you know, th- this is this is manna for heaven from me. Yeah. So now I've actually got some numbers to work on. I, I think the aggravating and mitigating factors is, is the the issue which I think you've you've correctly raised. That does seem to be completely arbitrary. You know it's it's like being on on the naughty step you know how naughty have you been um and how how long are we going to punish you is it going to be uh, is it going to be 30 minutes on the naughty step for <laughs> it equals one extra point or an hour equals two or, or you know, how, how do they decide on a punishment of that nature and then admitting the breach um is that an automatic each year um and, and is that going to be given for saying uh, that we're not going to use our lawyers to try to prevaricate and delay making a decision mm. um, in the hope of getting promoted to the Premier League. Because if a club is promoted to the Premier League, the Premier League will not be enforcing that penalty when when the club goes up. So you, wow. you can see what you can see a club who potentially is is in a playoff place might use and i'm not not being critical of of the legal profession here you know, they they are employed to do a job by clubs and one thing that they're very good at doing is delaying we we, we saw that with queen's park rangers it took four years to get, make a final ruling mm. um, but the club could be promoted and when you are in the premier league you are outside the clutches of uh, the efl um, there is a gentleman's agreement between the premier league and, and the efl in terms of fines but points deductions would certainly not count. You'd have to wait for that club to be relegated once again to the championship before any points deductions would kick in. So just just so I'm clear, then, and let's say um, let's say with Birmingham, the AFL had said, right, we we are going to du- deduct you points, but you're going to start next season on minus nine. Birmingham then sneak into the playoffs, win the playoffs, get promoted, so they would not start the Premier League season on minus nine. That's correct. Yes. Those, uh, those those deductions are only applicable to the English Football League, yeah. of which the EPL is not a member. Football's a bit of a mess, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. a, a lot of loopholes. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the the creation of the Premier League as an independent body from both the EFL and the Football Association has has led. It, it's a bit, it's a bit like what we see in boxing, where you've got hmm. different. So, you know, different awarding boards um, with different belts. Uh, I mean, at least we do have this this uh, this, this agreed promotion and relegation uh, arrangement between the between the two entities, which, which is one of the best things about football because you know, the, the the relegation fight is is just as entertaining um, as the as the uh, you know Champions League and and, uh, and Premier League uh, title itself. Uh, you know, otherwise you, you would have relatively little to play for. Mm. Um, the time. Uh, just on that, actually, my my wife raised this. She wanted me to uh, to ask you this one. She's a she's a Reading fan, um, so has uh, had some, uh, I guess, 
uh, interest in the playoffs in recent years, although less so right now. But yeah, she's just wondering, um, as, a, as a fan of football, what, what do you think to playoffs generally um, in terms of, I guess, the effect that it has on the rest of the championship? Because imagine instead if the top three got promoted, which would be conveniently great for United <laughs> this season, if that was the only way to get promoted and there was no playoffs, how does that change the landscape of the championship? Does it is it completely changed because suddenly, you know, there's only those three spots and pretty early on you're going to know that you, you're not going to have a chance at it or you are going to have a chance at it. Whereas now, I mean, while we eight games left, probably teams down as low as, well, 12th or 13th, I suppose, are still thinking, well, I'll tell you what, if we win seven of our last eight games and this goes this way, then we could sneak into the playoffs and then we could win them and get promoted. So, yeah, what's your kind of feeling on the playoffs generally as, as both, I suppose, a fan and, you know, someone heavily involved in football finance? Um. As a fan, uh, you know, Brighton were in the playoffs three three times in four years, mm-hmm. and we got knocked out straight away in, in each of them. It, it's gut-wrenching, but it's yeah. better to be in them than not be in them. Um, is, it, is it harsh on, on the side that finishes third? Well, it, it, it is a bit, but then if that side was really good, you could say they should have finished in the top two anyway. Yeah. Uh, from a financial point of view, they're absolutely fantastic. Because it means that going into the the last six or eight games of the seasons, if you as you correctly said, we've got twelve teams who potentially could be in those playoffs. So that's going to increase the level of match day attendances. It's going to mean that the matches which are being broadcast by Sky are going to attract more viewers because it's not just the fans of the two teams involved. You know, as as a if, if let's say if Sheffield United were fourth. If Middlesbrough are playing Villa in a match on Sky, you're going to watch it, Ben, aren't you? Mm. Because you're going to say, well, I want this side to win, this side to lose. Actually, I want it to be a nil-nil draw with both sides getting two players sent off. Yeah, That's, yeah. that's always your ideal uh, ideal for, for a match of that nature when it's your competitors. So it's actually really good for viewing figures. Um, it's, it's good for the players because the players and their, and their representatives know at the start of the season that we can, we can go into negotiations with a club and say, well, you know, it, it's not it's not a case of being in the top two or three. It's a case of I, I'm good enough to be a top six player and I could therefore help you get into the Premier League. You need to pay me accordingly. So there's more money coming in. There's more money going out to the players. Um, I think the, the sponsors are quite happy because we've all seen dead rubbers sort of six six matches from the end of the season. And, yeah. you know, n- nobody's... It's all a bit half-hearted. Yeah. It, it's it's not under this present situation. So um, I think the playoffs have got a lot to be said for them. Could they be better? Yeah, I th- think you've only got to look to see what happens with Rugby League to say that, to see that you, you can get quite complicated scenarios who do reward um, the clubs. I, I remember when... Um, Brighton played in the playoffs a couple of seasons ago. We went into the final match of the season. We were third. Borough was second. Um, we needed to win at at uh, at the Riverside to be promoted. Hmm. And and um, Sheffield Wednesday, who you may have heard of, um, <laughs> they they'd already secured sixth place. So they went and put out their reserve team for their final match of the season. Mm. We bust a gut for 95 minutes. The match finished one all and we weren't promoted and we were absolutely knackered by the time we played Wednesday the following 
Friday night, and, and I've never seen this before. We had four players who went off injured. Oh, we, I do we remember this. The yeah. Ten men because they were so exhausted from the previous match. So we were knocked out. So that does seem unfair that a side finishing third actually was at a disadvantage to a side that knew that they were going to finish sixth and therefore mm. would to rest all the players. So th- th- there are ways of improving that, but but I, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a, whilst I'm a numbers man, I'm a, I'm a financial numbers man. I, I think the, the, the intricacies and the algorithms for what would make a perfect set of playoffs is probably closer to what we see in rugby league at present um, to give the advantage to those sides that finish higher up the table. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Just to finish off then, I mean, uh, you kind of mentioned a few early on and obviously we've got Birmingham and Bolton in the conversation, but which other clubs in the championship are kind of major red flags to you, uh, assuming they don't get promoted this summer? Um, Aston Villa have problems. I I wrote an article at the weekend um, just trying to work out because lots of people say, well, how on earth are Villa not subject to... Um, financial fair play sanctions, mm. uh, and yeah, they've they've had the benefit of parachute payments, and you get benefits in terms of FFP if you've been in the Premier League. They've exploited those. They, I think, they are just about okay for last season, purely because their part part of their training ground has been bought for HS2, and that they and the profits they made on selling that just turned them from being the wrong side to the right side of, wow. of FFP. I think they're going to have problems going forwards because they've had vast overspends. I mean, they do have lots of players who will be coming to the end of their contracts. Mm. But realistically, I, I can't see them holding on to Grealish, who, who is an exceptional talent this summer. Well, it is because out of financial necessity. Yeah, I mean, is that just the get-out-of-jail-free card for them, essentially? You know, if they don't get promoted and they're, they're on the cusp of real uh, financial uh, punishments, I suppose, they just go, right, well... Let's let's start the bidding on Grealish at thirty-five million then, and you know that'll just get him out of the trouble. Is that is that how it will probably go? I, I think so. Yes, uh, and, and, and that that is that's a, that's a shame that financial decisions are dictating football because mm. regardless of what you think of Jack Grealish, I think he's a fantastic player. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he is a local lad that enjoys playing for his local team and. There's always that element of romance that we see in football. You know, that you do have that. To have that relationship, and I think Sheffield United fans have that with Chris Wilder. They have that with Billy Sharp, and so mm. on. And that that helps build the bonds, which you know historically I think have weakened uh, over the last couple of generations as, as we've moved to sort of a global recruitment approach to players. Mm. Um, so, so Villa are kind of concerned about Derby County. They've they've got problems as well. Um, Wednesday have problems, and uh, there's no there's no gloating from me one way or the other. I've got no strong feeling towards either clubs in Sheffield, apart from the fact I'm still bitter about Sheffield Wednesday beating us in the playoffs a couple of seasons ago. <laughs> um, and I, I think Borough will struggle a bit as well because mm. they they have they have spent big um, over the past couple of seasons since being relegated. Yeah, and. Um... Very few of those teams have uh, have a shot at going up this season. I mean, yeah, you know, out of uh, Villa, Derby, and Borough, only one of those is well. A couple of them might miss the playoffs, to be honest. But there's only exactly. one playoff spot available, so yeah, at least two of those are gonna gonna miss out. So yeah, it's gonna be 
interesting to see how that unfolds, I suppose. Um, final question for you then, because I appreciate I've taken up a lot of your time, which I'm very grateful for. But you are a Brighton fan, as you've mentioned there. How do you feel about their financial performance relative to on-field performance? They, you know, they seem to be in great shape from uh, in, in terms of recruitment. You know, they uh, I paid quite close attention. They made some very analytics-friendly signings. You know, they're they're very unlikely to go down. I would say I know you're quite close to the bottom, but you know, probably another win is probably going to be enough to keep you up. Um, and yeah, are they a, are they a sort of model of sustainability that other clubs of similar size, like United, I suppose, should be looking at, or have they have they kind of got lucky in terms of you know they pushed all their financial chips into the middle to win promotion, and then they've been able to stay there. Um, we we have an owner who's put three hundred million pounds into the club. That helps. So that <laughs> that helps. Uh, I mean, we we're, we're lucky that he's you know his his granddad was a supporter. He's been a supporter since he was a kid. Um, and then he's proven to be incredibly successful in his line of business. Um, I, I think the model does, however, have a lot of positives going for it in that it was very much a case of build the infrastructure in, in terms of the new stadium. That, uh, we, we were bringing in significant amounts of money by championship standards in terms yeah, of sell out every week, day. I think, wasn't it? Um, so, so that they... They were pretty smart. They've also invested huge sums in in the training and coaching facilities, and, and it is it is quite a money ball style club mm. in in the sense of that their recruitment is very analytic. Uh, it's very analytic based, but given the the nature of the the business of the club's owner, because I don't know whether you're familiar, he he runs a a gambling consortium. The mm. money's the money's in that of which are unbelievable in terms of the level he's bigger than some of the 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 high street bookmakers in terms of the money that he manages and the reason why he's successful in doing that um is that he's taken an analytical approach to to his for his clients who many of whom are in the far east and and, and other countries mm. so some of that is probably that some of those skills are then used within the within the club framework itself uh, yeah, we, we do recruit ridiculous numbers of players who then immediately go out on loan. So mm. not not to the same extent of Chelsea and Manchester City, but uh, yeah, we we have you know probably twenty to twenty five players who we've signed in the past couple of seasons, none of whom have ever been seen in an Albion shirt, with the view to giving them exposure to to uh, leagues in Europe, um, and, and then either selling them on. Or ideally, bringing them into the first team squad in due course once they've they've got the experience. So it, it, there is certainly a strategy there at the club. Um, we don't have any superstar signings. Uh, I think that's part of the strategy to have a mm. to have a wage structure which is which is fairly tight. So you know, I'm, you've got clubs such as as Palace who have got four players who are on a hundred grand a week plus. Now they're all on paper very good players. But that doesn't create a great deal of harmony in the mm. dressing room. Um, yet my understanding of, of things at the Albion is that our, our players, they're, they're well paid. Yeah, they're on money, which we would quite happily um, uh, take ourselves um, for, for, for a month would uh, would be more than yeah, we, we'd be earning in, in three or four years. Um, but it's, it's a fairly narrow band and, and the recruitment is done on that basis. So you know, I I see fans saying, "Well, let's let's sign such and such a player," and 
And I think, well, hold on, he's, if he's coming from the Chinese Super League, he's already on 150 grand a week. We, hmm. we're, that's not the market in which we're trying to compete. Um, realistically, we're, we're trying to deal you know, to be better than Burnley, yeah, to yeah. be better than, yeah, ideally to be better than Bournemouth. Although you know, they they do spend quite a lot of money on on wages. Hmm. Well, it's a, a good problem to have and one that hopefully Sheffield United will also have in uh, in just a few months' time. Fingers crossed, eh? Um, Kieran, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, where can people follow you on Twitter? Um, oh, I'm, I'm at Kieran Maguire, uh, K-I-E-R-E-N-M-A-G-U-I-R-E. Um, I, think, I think I call myself the price of football, mainly because um, a friend of mine set up this website called The Price of Football a couple of years ago and said, would I like to contribute? So priceoffootball.com mm-hmm. um, and he set it up and, and now I just do I just do all the writing for it. So, uh, <laughs> so it's one, one, of, one of those deals. Uh, but but uh, I have written up extensively on, on Sheffield United if anybody wants to read up about them. Um, on yeah, it and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll reshare as, the link to that. As soon as any club produces its results um because of my inner train spotter i i can't help but go into detail on them and and i tend to do a lot of tweeting first and then if i get a bit of time i'll write up a a more nuanced report later Mm. and you have a book coming out this summer as well called called price of football i believe it's called the price of football yes uh it's my first and last book (laughs) it's been two and a half years of sheer misery putting it together Uh, well, I have to keep an eye out for that one, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely share the link to the uh, the write up about United's accounts. But yeah, do go follow Kieran on Twitter and check out priceoffootball.com. It's yeah, it's you know, speaking from my own point of view, you know, I, I'm not uh, uh, particularly financially literate, I suppose. So you know, I have to say that the way you kind of uh, break down accounts into something that is digestible and also interesting is uh, is very commendable and very helpful for, as I say, those of us who are just not familiar with it uh, to anywhere near the degree that you are. So, yeah, thanks very much for uh, everything you do there. And, and thanks so much once again for, for coming on and, and talking about Sheffield United because I, I know you're a, a very busy man, a lot of media appearances recently. So I, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you uh, yeah, taking the time to come on and um, talk about the Bleeds. That's right. And I look forward to seeing you in the Premier League. I really Thanks hope so. Season. Yeah, if you're coming to the wonderful city of Sheffield to see Brighton play at the Lane, then uh, you have to let me know. I'll buy you uh, buy you a, a Sheffield pint. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you very much. Cheers, Kieran. Take it easy. Cheers.